Hello and welcome to Rural Business Uncovered, brought to you by the CLA, where each week we discuss matters affecting the rural sector. The Country Land and Business Association are the only organisation dedicated to protecting and defending the rights of landowners and rural businesses. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Countries, organisations and companies all in the race to achieve net zero emissions in the coming decades, interest in carbon markets and offsetting is rising rapidly. To achieve these big pledges, our greenhouse gas emissions have to drop rapidly and any remaining emissions offset by removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Now, there are a number of ways in which this can be done, but the ones gaining the most traction are land-based offsets, such as tree planting, peatland restoration and soil health improvements. In fact, Mark Carney, the UN Special Envoy for Climate Action and previous governor of the Bank of England, has estimated that these markets must grow 15-fold and up to 85% of that growth should come from nature-based solutions. As the carbon price rises and interest in UK-based offsets grows, landowners and farmers have an opportunity to enter these markets and gain a new income stream. However, as the private sector market develops, a number of issues are coming to the fore and there are some significant risks, in some cases potentially outweighing the opportunities. Alongside this, government policy is being developed, notably the new Environmental Land Management Scheme in England and the Sustainable Farming Scheme in Wales. How government policy intersects with carbon markets will greatly impact on the success of these markets and whether they work for landowners. Well, today we're joined by Alice Ritchie, CLA Climate Change Lead, and Harry Grocott, Chief Executive and Co-Founder of Tree Economy, a nature-based carbon capture company working on carbon offsetting projects across the UK and internationally. Welcome, Alice and, and Harry. Great to have you joining us uh, today. Now, Alice, if I can come to you first, I know you've been on, on these podcasts before, but for the benefit of those tuning in today, tell us a bit about your background and the nature of your work as the climate change lead for the CLA. Of course, thank you, Alad. Um, yes, yeah, so my name's Alice Ritchie. I'm the climate change lead for the Country Land and Business Association um, and doing all sorts of different work on climate change, agriculture, nature-based solutions, looking at all of that kind of stuff. Um, and really my focus of the last couple of months has been on carbon markets, which has been a really exciting um, area that we're learning so much more about at the moment. And um, so, yeah, really looking forward to talking about it today. Brilliant. Yeah, it, it is a very exciting space and there's a lot of people talking about it. And, and great to have Harry joining us uh, today because this is very much your area of expertise. Uh, first of all, tell us about, about a bit about your background and then explain how did Tree Economy come about? Hi, Alad. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Um, so, yeah, Tree Economy, we are um, a, a climate change impact business Um Relatively new, relatively young, um, I guess classified as a as a startup, really. Um, but in terms of, of my background, I, I read physical geography as, as an undergraduate, so uh, very very much focused on climate change science, uh, sort of remote sensing, and, and a few things like that. Uh, very lucky to to have also gone to a, a field trip on the course to, to Brazil to the Atlantic Forest, uh, which was a, a real sort of eye opener in into sort of the, the practical ways that that these things are done. Um, because there's there's a lot of work going on uh, in in Brazil and, and across the tropics on on these sorts of forest protection uh, projects. But but essentially, I, I ended up working in in wealth management afterwards. A bit of a left turn, um, and it was it was actually when I was when I was sat at, at the desk um, doing doing my job there that that we came up with the idea for tree economy. Um, uh, essentially focused on 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 the idea that we need more more tree planting, um, but we also need more accurate methods. To actually calculate the carbon uh, that these trees and, and forests capture over time, um, especially if we're to, to do this sort of action at scale. I mean, we're, we're talking about gigatons of, of carbon removal, 
Um, so that's that's billions of tons of CO2. Uh, to do that at scale, we need to bring in we need to bring in finance. Uh, and if you're talking to finance, uh, you, you need numbers and you need trusted, um, hard, cold numbers that that they can rely on. So that's that's kind of where where tree economies ended up uh, going. Essentially, we uh, we're an integrated developer broker um, of of credits, uh, but also a, a technology provider. So so we're developing tools that that can better track and and monitor these projects over time. Uh, and, and bring that trust element to it. And that's fundamentally important, is it? Having that ability to accurately measure uh, what, what's being traded. And I'm sure we'll, we'll come on to, to some of the tools and technology that you're using in, in, in the fascinating space that you're operating in. Uh, but Alice, if I can just come back to you quickly and start off with some of the basics, actually. And how would you explain carbon offsetting markets to someone? What are they, essentially? Yeah, it's a really good starting question, isn't it? Um, I think... It's, so basically we have carbon markets and there's two different types, emissions trading schemes, um, where you're essentially buying and selling the right to emit greenhouse gas emissions. But then we've also got offsetting schemes, which is more what we're going to be talking about today, I think, where emissions reductions are bought and sold. And you're essentially trading the same unit in both of those, a tonne of carbon dioxide equivalent, or CO2E. So offset markets basically allow polluting companies to offset their emissions by purchasing carbon credits created elsewhere through the reduction or avoidance of emissions um, or through negative emissions. So yeah, actually removing that carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and storing it as carbon. Um, in some countries, in some situations, they're mandatory, um, so people have to be entered into them. Uh, but in the UK, they're actually just voluntary. Um, so companies are mostly motivated to offset their emissions through I don't know, uh, you know, internal ESG type policies, marketing things. Um, but because we've seen such a massive increase in companies pledging to go net zero, this is why we've seen a huge increase now in the offset market. These companies are realizing, right, we can reduce our, emis our emissions as far as we possibly can, but it's going to be really hard to get them down to zero. So we need to find a way to balance that out. It's sort of the net and net zero, if that makes sense. So, so the demand for these credits are, are really growing. Is there enough supply on the market at the moment? Well, at the moment, it feels like we're not seeing as much supply as there is demand. Um, part of this is because one of the most cost-effective um, and really simplest ways, I suppose, of offsetting emissions is through nature-based solutions. So... We're talking um, tree planting, peatland restoration, and potentially, this is a bit of a grey area at the moment, but potentially improving the health of farm soils um, so that they're storing more carbon. Um, but what is quite interesting is there's all sorts of different technology and um, investment and research going on in other options for carbon storage. Um, I know that Elon Musk said on Twitter a while ago that he was good. I think he was going to give a million dollars or something to the person who comes up with the best new technology. So there might be other options on the horizon, but right now what we're really working with is, yeah, nature-based solutions. Um, but I, don't, I just don't think, based on what we've been looking at within the CLA, and it'll be interesting to see if Harry agrees with this, we're just not seeing yet these markets working for landowners because they're not really entering them at the scale that we need. I mean, the scale that Mark Carney says we need, as you, as you said in your intro. So... It'll be really interesting to think about how we can redevelop them or influence them a wee bit to make them work better for landowners and farmers so that we can actually get these solutions um, at scale and start seeing the, the supply meeting the demand. Harry, what's your experience in dealing with farmers and landowners within the UK specifically in, in terms of getting their involvement and participation in this market? Yeah, no, it's, 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 a, it's a thing we've actually spent a lot of time on. Um, so we've, we've been working hard to speak to, to farmers, but, but also sort of large um, central estate and, and landowners. Um, and generally, we, we've seen sort of two types really and, and, and quite, quite contrasting. Um, we've seen a number that, that, that sort of aren't, aren't that interested. You know, they've, they've got their, their main job. They're, they're generally very busy with, with the existing land use. Uh, but we have seen a, a lot of quite progressive landowners, actually, that, that we're now speaking to who, who really want to enter into this, this market space. They can see uh, the benefit and, and the diversification, I suppose, to it. Um, plus, uh, to an extent, the writing on the wall with, uh, with subsidy changes and, and things like that. Um, who really want to engage with it, and and we're starting to work with them now to to design 
the financial models and, and the revenue models that actually make it compelling. Because it's, it fundamentally has to come down, just, just like Alice is saying, it, it has to be uh, financially viable for the, for the landowner to do that, for this to be sustainable. Like we, we can only take uh, this sort of broad sustainability action if it's financially sustainable um, for, the, for the individual uh, land and, and business owner. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's part, of, part of our interest um, is, is speaking to, to those landowners and, and really getting those, those data points, you know, what, what uh, income level um, do we need to begin to generate per hectare per year for this to become competitive? And then how do we design our business to suit that need? Uh, and, and really tailor it to the to the landowner. Uh, and how does the revenue model work? Because if if you if you sell a credit on, on the market, is that is that a one off transaction? It's 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 a capital disposal. Once you've sold it, it's gone. Or, or is there an ongoing, uh, an annual payment where farmers can get for for continuing works? So there's two schemes. It depends really where you are in. Well, there's there's one overarching scheme, obviously. So you've got the Woodland Carbon Code, which is the UK's carbon offset standard. Um, and essentially the way it works is you, you create your project. So you kind of draw your, your area around where you're, you're planting. If we're talking about afforestation or, or reforestation, uh, you can then project roughly what, what you think the, the carbon capture will be. And, and a lot of that comes from, from yield tables. Um, and then essentially once the project is, is accepted, it becomes validated into the scheme. You create what are called pending issuance units, um, which essentially are, are guarantees to capture carbon in, in the future. And you, you can sell those today, uh, which basically means that, that you, know, you, you sell all of the asset today and, and uh, at, at whatever today's price is. Um, or you can hold on to those and, and sort of you know, pay it over time or, or realize that, that gain over time. Um, there is a separate scheme in England called the Woodland Carbon Guarantee, uh, which is a, uh, essentially a, a, a government DEFRA-backed scheme uh, that guarantees to, to buy it at a certain sort of price. It's, it's a reverse auction process. So there, there are those sort of two broad um, market ways of, of doing it. There's no sort of guaranteed income over time at the moment, um, although you, you could try and, and sort of design it. But that's that's part of what we're what we're looking to look at is is the the frequency of payment, because otherwise, at the moment, it's it's done on, on almost a decadal uh, process uh, from a verification perspective. So if we can increase uh, the frequency of, of payment, then I think that's that's one of the key things that we need to tackle uh, on, on behalf of, of the asset owner or the, or the landowner. I think, Alice, that would help. Do you think an annual payment or, or the frequency of payments uh, would would encourage more landowners to get involved in, um, in, in the market? Yeah, I really think that... Um, exactly as Harry says, it does all come down to financial viability and making making a carbon offsetting project a a use of land that is hopefully going to achieve a similar revenue um, as it was previously. You know, if it was if it was productive agriculture land, it's going to be quite hard to justify switching that into a carbon offsetting project unless you're able to get you know some kind of similar levels. Um, of payment for it or revenue from it rather. So I think it's incredibly important that we make sure these um, these markets work and make and yeah are making people sort of actual money really and they're not just um, I mean they could be fantastic on marginal areas of land that might not be making any money at the moment, but equally to see the scale of change that we need, um, it does completely have to be financially viable for, for all different types of landowners and farmers. And how does the pricing mechanism work? Does the Woodland Carbon Code set the price or, or is it a commercial transaction? Um, do you want to take this one, Harry? Sure, yeah, no, I can jump in. So um, I suppose the, the, the place to start here is uh, we call it the voluntary carbon market and it makes it sound as though there is a singular market for this. Um, but actually, it's a bit of a misnomer because it's, it's what we call mark-to-market um, trade and, and pricing or, or over-the-counter trades, which basically means that each transaction is is sold to an individual, right? So um, let's say we're, we're selling to, to corporates. You can have uh, sort of a, a range of, of large or, or big businesses, uh, large or, or small businesses rather, who are looking to offset emissions. Uh, and the process really is, is, to, is to go to each um, and, and to look at, to, to see what they're looking to buy and to then negotiate price with them. Uh, the Woodland Carbon Code uh, don't set the pricing. Uh, they, I don't, as far as we can see from our discussions with them, they don't actually have um, a record of the pricing available either. Um, so it's it's all very much based on uh, the end buyer. 
and what they're willing to pay. Uh, and they're, you know, you, you've seen sort of prices historically in, in the UK at sort of 12 or, or 15 pounds. Uh, we're now seeing prices that are that are going north of, of 30 towards sort of 40 pounds uh, per ton with with sort of a range in between for, for various uh, various reasons that, that dictate that that price point. But it's it's very much at the moment uh, a sort of informal over the counter uh, process. So, so there is a slight variation in price then, Harry. What what dictates that? Um, aren't all credits the same essentially, or, or is there any differentiation within the market? Sure. So it's yeah, the the price discovery behind this isn't yet as as mature as we would like it to be. So obviously at, at Tree Economy we work both uh, UK domestically, but also internationally. But but we can use. Uh, the UK as as an example. So you're right in the the view that an offset is the same as an offset here or an offset there. Um, so if we have an afforestation project in Somerset, that should be the same as as something that we're we're doing um, sort of in you know up up in the north of England or or even up in Scotland. Um, the difference behind that though, or at least the the narrative that that we're building now is that each project itself is actually very different and very distinct. Uh, because we're, we're dealing with ecosystems and these ecosystems have uh, different growing regimes, you could have a, a monocultural sort of block plantation uh, that is that is being grown somewhere, or you could have a mixed broadleaf um, a sort of forest that's, that's being built elsewhere or a sort of ancient forest recreation uh, project, uh, you know, on, on, on the coast of Scotland or something like that. Now, each of those are actually very distinct and therefore... The service that you're buying, or at least the service that you're financing through your your carbon purchase, can be quite different and quite distinct. And and it's those additional services really that are that are driving those those price changes. So things like biodiversity. Um, so if you've got a monocultural block plantation, um, then the price that you're likely to be able to achieve for that is is probably going to be lower than something that is supporting uh, sort of mixed broadleaf plantations elsewhere because the, the total sort of ecosystem service package that's, that's being delivered is, is higher. So you, you've got things like that that, that will drive pricing, uh, but equally it, it then comes down to the buyer as well. Uh, and some buyers are, are, are simply willing to, to pay more at this moment in time to, to, uh, to capture carbon um, and, and others, uh, others are, are really looking for, for sort of volume plays. Um, internationally as well, there's there's a range based on on jurisdiction. So um, British companies tend to pay more for for British based offsets. Um, there's the sort of a, a regional bias, uh, and then you you do also see um, sort of the international market a, a difference by sort of project type. So um, forest creation tends to be at a higher price than um, sort of avoided deforestation um, credits and and things like that as well. So there's there's a few different um, Sort of pricing mechanisms, but but within the UK, it's it's broadly on those those additional attribute characteristics. And that's really interesting, isn't it, to to understand what are the drivers and what motivates the buyers. And um, different projects will appeal to different buyers, and and that that does then lead to slight differences in prices depending on what the demand is for, for, for those particular credits. Uh, Alice, what's your view on that? I find that really, really interesting. Yeah, it's really, it's interesting. It's also really promising for UK landowners because we're hearing um, a lot of companies saying that they, they're only interested in UK-based projects and even better or sort of one up from that really regional projects like Harry was saying where you know, if, if you think about maybe a small to medium sized business in a city somewhere, they're looking to invest in an offsetting project on the, you know, the periphery of that city maybe, where say it was a tree planting project, their employees could go out there, help with the planting, um, turn it into a kind of, I don't know, staff away day type thing. They, they then might have a bit of um, access to be walking through it if that's what they wanted or something like that. Uh, and they have a sort of sense of, a greater sense of ownership over it um, and over their sort of climate change policies in general. They feel like they're sort of taking action um, on climate change in quite a tangible way. And so those are the projects that, that are hopefully going to be able to command a slightly higher carbon price. Um, 
And I think that's a really promising, exciting idea for UK landowners at the moment. And so far, we've spoken mainly about the Woodland Carbon Code and credits which have been generated from tree planting. But there are other uh, nature-based solutions, as we mentioned right at the very beginning, isn't it, Alice? How advanced are those in terms of routes to market? Um, So I'd say the Woodland Carbon Code is the most advanced at the moment, but we're seeing lots of growth. Um, in the peatland restoration work that's that's underway, um, and then also in, in farmed soils. So I'll, I'll deal with them separately because they're both they are quite different. Um, at the moment, we have a peatland code, uh, and essentially peatland covers. We've actually discussed it on another podcast, haven't we, Alan? Peatland covers about twelve yeah. percent of the UK. It stores. They, it's often referred to as the UK's rainforest. It stores huge amounts of carbon. Um, I think it's about 20 times as much as forests and has the capability to almost perpetually continue storing more and more carbon. Um, but because of the way we've been using them and looking after them for the last few decades, it's currently for the most part degrading. So there's huge potential for this to turn from a net emitter of greenhouse gases to um, a net sequester of greenhouse gases. So the idea of the Peatland Code um, is that it was established to help make peat restoration projects more financially viable because they can be really, really expensive to get going. Um, very similar to the Woodland Carbon Code in that it's, in that it's a voluntary certification standard um, and essentially it just provides assurance to carbon market buyers that what they're purchasing um, is, is real, is real carbon, is quantified um, and it meets some of the other tests that, that it has to, um, like additionality and permanence. Um, which we can we can get into later. That's those are slightly slightly complicated when it comes to carbon markets, but it essentially just tells peatland restoration project owners uh, what kind of best practice um, activities they need to be doing, um, and then also has a, a methodology for measuring um, carbon sequestration. There's uh, and Harry might know a bit more about this than me, but I don't think there's a huge number of projects yet in England and Wales, but there are um, a few in Scotland, I think. Um, but they do they do look like they could be really promising, and in some cases the carbon um, from peatland is commanding a slightly higher price than forestry, I think, up to about £25 a tonne. Um, and then we get to soil carbon, which is such an exciting space, but so complicated at the moment and in a big phase of development, really. Um, I think we're coming to globally coming to a bit of an understanding of how important soils are um, in the in the fight against the climate crisis. They can they, they currently store a huge amount of carbon, um, but have the capacity in many situations to be storing more. Um, and there's some estimates that with the farmland in the UK, if it was if another one to two tons of um, CO2e was sequestered per hectare per year. This could be up to £750 million per year in carbon credits. So that's a massive opportunity, I think, wow. for UK landowners. It's yeah. huge. Um, and there's all sorts of other co-benefits that go with it, um, similar to trees and, and with peatland. Healthy soils you know, are able to absorb water and help mitigate against flood risk and drought, um, protect biodiversity, uh, improve crop productivity. They're just, yeah, I think the soils are just so important underpinning whole farm systems really so a lot of people um and this is not just farmers this is also the government and a number of different environmental groups like green alliance um, are looking in how we are looking into how we can use farm soils to meet climate change targets and how we can essentially create a farm and soil carbon code very similar to the woodland carbon code or the peatland carbon code to sell those to sell carbon credits out of farm soils it's in development right now there's some pretty significant issues um, that need to be overcome to make this really properly work um, or a, a really big one is permanence it's quite hard you know if you're if you're a carbon dioxide emission is in the atmosphere pretty much forever more or less it'll take a couple of thousand years um, and so trying to prove that a carbon credit has the, a sort of similar level of permanence, if that makes sense, is quite difficult when it comes to soils, uh, because there's legislation in the UK that once land is in trees, it's always in trees, there's more guarantee that those trees will be permanent and therefore um, that carbon store will be permanent. But I mean, how do you prove it for soils? What happens if 
you spend you know 10 years improving the carbon stocks in your farm soils and then you sell your land or your tenancy ends and then the next person plows it all up so that there's some difficult issues around that um there's also some uh, environmental or environmental issues i suppose in that soil carbon stocks can be quite vulnerable to flood and drought and things like that so lots of issues there also some quite big um, issues around measurement and quantification but I do think all of this can be overcome if we have some better measurement standards um, and put different mechanisms in place like conservation covenants and things like that we can start finding ways to make to create a farm and soil carbon code and start making this market work but I think what's happening in the interim is because so many people have seen how how important this could be and the kind of um, the kind of money that could be made, I suppose, and, and what kind of things can be done in this space. There's all sorts of different individual standards popping up around the place, um, which is great. It sort of shows that, that things are progressing and working. But equally, we need to really be sure that these different standards that are popping up are um, really robust. Because what I'm worried about at the moment is if any of these standards are proven to be not quite as robust as we think they are, it could undermine the whole market and, and you know ruin the carbon price and things like that. So I think the quicker we are able to create and establish a farm and soil carbon code, the better, because it'll just give that market the certainty and robustness that it needs to really flourish. Mm. And that comes back to a point that Harry made earlier around their focus in Treeconomy, around making sure that the data they capture is accurate and all the credits are, are certified and backed up. And, and you, you use, Harry, a lot of technology to, to certify and justify uh, and provide the authenticity you need for, to, to support the market. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I mean, and, and I'll, I'll say straight off as well that we, we do still work under the Woodland Carbon Codes protocols and standards. Uh, and I think that's that's something... Uh, worth worth noting, but but you're right that we we do use a lot of uh, technology to. I mean, really, what we're looking to do here is is more accurately calculate what's what's currently held in the ground, um, and then more accurately track that over time. Just just like Alice was saying, um, what we're dealing with really is CO two, uh, and that's an invisible gas. So we need to make a you know a way for this to be tangible um, to buyers, but then also to those that are that are regulating and, and checking this market. Um, and obviously, if we're planting trees, those themselves are, are quite quite tangible, quite physical, but but even then are, are often remote. So how do we how do we do it more accurately? And then how do we do it so that so that people can can turn well? Basically, we're turning something intangible and invisible into tangible and, and highly visible. Um, so what we use are uh, a, a range of um, high resolution remote sensing data. So basically, satellites. Uh, so we we have a Basically, we, we task satellites over an area. So what that means is we we literally uh, we're, we're using private satellites. We move the satellite over the over the farm, um, and then collect high resolution imagery from that. Uh, so fifty centimeter resolution. Uh, in addition, we're also then deploying uh, drones for uh, basically to to create a three D point cloud of of the site. So literally a a 3D output of, of what's there. And that, that can use LIDAR or, or we can even use imagery uh, for, for less dense um, forest areas for, for that. Uh, and, and then once we have that, those, those data sets, we've built uh, a range of software tools that can, that can far more accurately assess basically the, the health of the forest. Um, so really basic things uh, to, to begin with. Uh, how many trees are there? Is, is the most fundamental question if we're looking at, at afforestation and, and forest-based carbon capture. Uh, and at the moment, there is, there is no sort of definite answer for most projects because we're not, we, we don't have the funding to go and send people into these forests and count and, and, and sort of locate each individual tree. I mean, that would be an enormous job for, for, for anyone. Um, so we we can we've basically built a tool um, that can automatically count trees. So we're using um, sort of AI or, or a, what's called a neural network um, to to basically count trees. Um, equally, we're we're looking at you know how big is the area? What is what is the exact sort of um, hectareage or, or acreage of, of the site? Because if you've got the number of trees uh, and the area, then you're going to have a much more accurate um, carbon calculation. Um, so rather than than sort of just roughly drawing a, a boundary. Um, we can we can actually use sort of change detection processes to to really 
assess the, 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 the size of, of the site, which is particularly important on an ongoing basis because, uh, you know, forests can, can, can grow and expand upwards, but, but also outwards. Um, or in fact, there, there could be sort of true mortality. And, and, and that's a really important thing on an ongoing basis. It's, it's not necessarily about how many trees are we putting in the ground. It's about how many trees are, are staying alive once they're in the ground. Um, so, so yeah, we have a, a range of tools that, that basically give us those, those data sets. And then uh, we have a, a more accurate assessment of, of exactly what's going on at, at that site. Um, and what this does then is it allows us to sell um, the carbon credits from these projects at a higher price point, because essentially we've, we've put more work in and there's more trust around uh, the numbers that, that we're providing. So uh, we're selling our, the carbon offset credits that, that we're working with at a, at a premium price uh, compared to, to sort of the, well, there is no average price, but, but what we believe others are, are paying within the rest of the market. Um, and that's, that's basically the, the technology level um, that we're at at the moment. We're continuing to, to build this out. Um, and it was really interesting what, what Alice was saying there about new project types and, and the soil codes and, and things like that. We're really interested um, as well with, with hybrid land uses. So things like uh, agroforestry or, or silvo pasture, uh, where you've basically got, or, or silver arable actually as well, uh, where you've got uh, sort of dispersed tree planting in amongst farming. Uh, so then you've got multiple revenue streams coming from the same, the same area. Uh, and it's, it's technically then also not classed as, as a forest, but, but as agriculture, which, which comes with, um, well, all of the, the sort of flexibility that, that Alice was, was talking about or, or referring to previously. And the type of buyers that, that you're working with really value the, the data and the information that you can share with them about the projects. Hence, it, it, you managed to achieve a premium price for, for the credits. But it's are, are you noticing any trends amongst your buyers? Are you, are you getting more questions or, or more demand for certain types of data from them? Or, or, or have you seen uh, the development or, or a surge in interest from a certain type of buyer? Interesting around surge in interest. Uh, we've had a lot of, of interest inbound from, I mean, we, we deal with, with companies. So, uh, you know, you, you can be an individual who can offset your emissions, but, but we're focusing at, at companies because they're, they're the ones with the bigger carbon footprints. We've seen a lot of interest from companies who are aligned with uh, B Corp, which is is basically uh, sort of a, again a, a voluntary standard that you can you can assign yourselves to. Um, so we've had a lot of interest from from sort of small to medium sized businesses, um, but equally now you're you're seeing FTSE hundred businesses, so so the largest companies in the UK, publicly listed, tens of billions of dollars of, of market capitalization, um, have, have been sort of reaching out, um, looking for for these sorts of projects. Um, in terms of the, the technology demands, I, I think there's just generally an interest to, to really get to grips with, with how the project's performing and, and where it is and what it looks like, um, really just, just making it, it tangible. Um, because again, this is, this is a voluntary market. So these companies don't have to be doing the actions that they're, they're taking. I mean, there's, there's increasing stakeholder pressure from buyers and investors and, governments to do it but no one's forcing them at the moment so what they're looking to do i suppose it really is is just make sure that the money they are spending on that is going to the right place um and and we're we're, we're trying to speak to them as well to understand just what what else they would like to do because we we can begin to build new tools and new outputs uh for them but um but but so far what we've seen is is just that sort of you know where is it how's it doing what's how does it look that that sort of thing 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. The Country Land and Business Association have been safeguarding the interests of landowners and rural businesses since 1907. We lobby government continually on behalf of our members to give them the security and certainty to invest in their land and business. Our in-house professional advisory team offers members independent and impartial advice on every aspect of land ownership and rural business management to ensure the positive development of the rural economy. Alice, so far we've spoken a lot around um, the benefits of getting involved in carbon markets, but what are the risks to landowners of, of getting involved? Yeah, this is something I've been thinking about quite a lot. And I think with with our position in the CLA, because we can kind of, we've got a sort of high level view of what's happening within the market and the private sector, but also with government policy and things like that. When you start kind of connecting all the dots and looking at all the different policies that are coming through and different things, you realise that there's just a lot happening and there's potentially a few different areas that might pose a bit of a threat um, for UK landowners who are interested in getting in these markets. And it's not to say that it, that it will overwhelm, um, it will outweigh the benefits, um, but definitely things I think people need to have on their radar. So one of the big ones that I've been thinking about is the difference between um, carbon insets, where you're, inset, where you're essentially offsetting your own emissions but within your own business or supply chain, and carbon offsets. Um, and this is really something I've been thinking about in the context of um, big supermarket chains like Morrison's and Waitrose announcing that they're only going to source from net zero farms. So if you're you know, an average farmer and Waitrose is one of your biggest customers and you yeah, produce a lot of food for Waitrose, and all of a sudden they say, right, in 15 years, or 14 years, by 2035, we expect you to be net zero. And in the meantime, you've actually gone and you know planted a whole lot of trees uh, on a spare bit of land, entered into the Woodland Carbon Code and sold all of those carbon credits to, I don't know, an airline or something. What happens then? You know, you've got, you're, you will have then sold, sold your carbon and then you can't use it to offset your own emissions. So what does that mean for your contract with Waitrose and same potentially with Morrison's? And I'm not saying that this is a deal breaker necessarily because you might have capacity to sequester and store enough carbon to offset your own your own farm emissions and then sell some on top of that. But what I'm worried about is that people will enter these markets quickly, farmers will enter these markets quickly and then realise down the track that actually they needed to hold on to some credits to offset their own emissions. So some different... Um, Offsetting companies are talking about, you know, only buying carbon credits from farmers who are already at net zero. But net zero is a really big task. It's not that it's not that simple or that easy. Um, and I always say this, and I think I'm probably that's probably not right. But I often think, for an airline that's emitting carbon dioxide and can measure that carbon dioxide quite quite clearly and sort of fuel consumption and things like that. And then you know, they're, because they're able to measure it, they're then able to figure out what they need to offset. And it's all working within the same greenhouse gas. It's all relatively simple and relatively measurable. It's not the same for, for farming operations. You're talking a number of different greenhouse gases. You've got methane, you've got nitrous oxide. Um, a lot of it is measured on quite kind of arbitrary figures that don't always match up to what's actually happening on farm. And very few people have the capacity to be accurately measuring um, accurately measuring their farm emissions and then working out how much they need to offset. So it's just it's just not that simple, really. And so what I'm conscious of is that landowners and farmers need to be quite careful about yeah, what they're going to need to inset and how they measure that versus what they might be able to sell um, to, for others to offset. Um, there's also some potential issues around how these markets might fit with wider policies um, and wider environmental markets. So thinking particularly about the environmental and management scheme in England and the sustainable farming scheme in Wales. These, both of these um, schemes are going to be, the government is going to be providing money to farmers for uh, different actions that they take uh, for environmental services, essentially public money for public goods. 
And one of those public goods listed is climate change. So if you're getting paid by the government to do actions that uh, are likely to sequester and store carbon, can you then sell that carbon to someone else as well? Or are you getting paid twice for the same thing? I don't know. You know, it's sort of, this is stuff that hasn't quite been worked through um, in terms of government policy. And it's quite a difficult one to figure out how it could all fit in. And this is where the principle of um, additionality comes in. And this is a, a really complicated, difficult thing to try and um, to try and explain. But it is really about making sure um, that the carbon project uh, is only viable with carbon finance, and that it's also sequestering and storing more carbon that, than would have been stored anyway. And when you're getting paid for an action that's going to store carbon, and then trying to get paid for the carbon as well. It just creates a slightly messy situation um, that I think the government is going to have to be quite careful about to make sure that they're allowing these markets to flourish while also um, supporting farmers through the new environmental land management scheme and sustainable farming scheme. So I'm not saying that any of these risks are necessarily yeah, massive deal breakers or anything like that, but it's definitely worth just thinking carefully about what, what's on the horizon and what's happening in this space. Um, because things seem to be moving really quickly at the moment uh, in both government policy and in the private sector. And this market is, uh, yeah, it's growing. And so we need to make sure that we're really, really across everything that could happen in the future and how all of this might, how it might all fit in together. And I mean, that's where hopefully the CLA comes in and making sure that these markets really, really work in the context of government policy. Mm. Yeah, and you're so right to urge caution because there's just so much change happening. Just looking at farming and landowners, that they're facing a huge change in the support systems and support yeah. schemes that have been obviously operated in Europe. Now, outside of Europe, post-Brexit schemes are being developed by all UK governments. So there's a lot happening. And in all fairness, to to many landowners and rural business owners, it's a lot to, to take in. But but what do you think, Alice, about you know the future skill sets that that'll be required by farmers? Do you think understanding carbon carbon offsetting is, is going to be a core skill required by farmers of the future? Is this a, a space whereby people are going to have to upskill quite quickly in order to get their heads around all these um, issues and 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 to be able to make well-informed decisions as to what practices they adopt on their farms and what markets they, they enter into? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think one of the great things about these new um, agricultural policies is that it is helping farmers and land managers slightly reframe the way that they view their land. You know, it's not just something that produces food, um, as they've probably mostly, you know, always known and always viewed it like this. It's actually an environmental deliverer and it's capable of, you know, doing a number of things, fighting the climate crisis, the biodiversity crisis, improving water quality, all of that kind of stuff. So I think the way that people perceive land is definitely changing. But it's so important that, that people start thinking about carbon as another asset, another business asset. They might be sitting on significant carbon stocks right now, um, which might not be able to be entered into a carbon market, but doesn't mean that they're worthless necessarily. If you've got fantastic soils with a really high um, carbon content, they're going to be more productive soils and they're going to be um, yeah, protecting, mitigating against impacts of climate change and things like that. And the same with trees, you know, you know that if you've got an established forest, it's doing all sorts of other things for the environment, as well as storing carbon. So carbon is a, is a business asset, like many other things, and the capacity to store more um, will be a really important business asset in the future. So I do think there'll be a little bit of, um, yeah, I suppose, upskilling and understanding of how this all, how this all works, and, and even just the, the basics of, you know, how and why carbon is stored in a tree or in peatlands and things like that, um, but also in understanding how to access these markets. But I think this is also where companies like Harry's come in, like, like Tree Economy. This is why we need these <clears throat> kind of brokerage situations. We need people um, in the middle of it with access to both the buyers and the sellers who are able to connect those two, but also provide a bit of knowledge exchange um, and I mean Harry knows I come to him with all sorts of different questions in the last couple of weeks because he's such a you know great source of knowledge um, and I'm hopeful that as these markets develop more and more people like Harry will, will have this kind of knowledge 
um, and be able to help landowners and farmers make these markets really, really work for them. And that's such an important point, isn't it? It's uh, it's about sharing information between parties. That That's where you gain trust and uh, have a degree of transparency in, in that transaction. Well, well, Harry, you know, as, as we draw this podcast to a close, what's your final messages to, to our listeners? Uh, many CLA members might be listening in, thinking of wanting to, to dip their toe in the water, get involved in some carbon offsetting markets. Uh, what's your advice or key messages? for them yeah no I, I think I mean everything that, that you and Alice have just been talking about there is is, is really really uh, very valid in in terms of you know making sure that, that the actions that are taken are appropriate and and fit into uh, the sort of you know the holistic land management approach um, I also think that you know there's there's a really compelling story here when you actually look at the direction of travel which is uh, we are increasingly now, uh, you know, talking around natural capital and ecosystem services and, and all of these other things that, that have always been around but have never really been talked about that much before. But now it's, it's, it's front of mind for, for pretty much everyone that's, that's involved um, with, within this, this whole sort of business, broad business sector. Um, so I, I think it's th- that education piece is, is really, really valuable. I, I think it is worth um, you know, speaking to well companies like ours, of course, um, but but there's there's a range of other companies out there. Um, so so it's worth uh, sort of speaking speaking to these companies, seeing how the process works, educating uh, your, yourselves around uh, just just yeah, I mean how this fits in uh, to to the rest of of the sort of uh, the land management activity that's that's going on. Um, but but equally, I think it is a, it's a good opportunity in in that it does provide uh, you know that diversified income stream, especially with with sort of you know uh, subsidy payments changing and things like that. It, it's incredibly disruptive at the moment, uh, and there is there is this this potential new stream. It is new. It is uh, different, and and sometimes because of that, uh, risky of course. So so obviously take caution. But uh, we're increasingly seeing seeing uh, landowners. Uh, coming on and, and, and working with us. Uh, and we know that there's a lot of buyers out there and, and the UK government has got a legally binding net zero target. So we know this is the correct direction of travel. And so long as we're collecting the necessary uh, data to, to demonstrate that the correct actions have been taken, um, then you're probably putting yourself in, in the best possible position. Um, but I definitely think uh, podcasts like this and, and the CLA in, in general, um, putting putting these, these sort of... Uh, options out there and and uh, sort of educational resources is really really valuable and and is 100% what is needed we at tree economy can try and provide the services but we're we're certainly under capacity to provide that that educational piece and, and this is massively valuable and Alice what's your final take home message i definitely agree with everything that harry has said i think i mean we could have talked for hours and hours about this topic we haven't even got into i don't know opportunities in blue carbon and, and marine ecosystems and things like that and there's all sorts of opportunities in the regenerative agriculture space at the moment um, and his, so the tax implications, there's so much to think about and talk about in this space and it is so interesting. Um, but what I do do think is that, yeah, we just need more information out there for landowners and, and start to try and influence these markets to make them work better. So we're doing, um, I'm, I'm writing a guidance note for the CLA at the moment, which will be available to our members shortly, kind of just spelling all this out, um, hopefully, hopefully making a lot of sense and putting it all into context. And we're really keen to play that role, um, as Harry says, is sort of knowledge exchange, um, helping talk through, you know, what, what contracts might look like or how to navigate different landowner-tenant relationships in this space and all sorts of different elements um, to, to carbon markets like that, as well as talking, you know, to different people within the private sector. Um, you know, we've been doing some work with some of uh, yeah, different people working in Mark Carney's task force on scaling up these voluntary carbon markets because ultimately it's so important that landowners and farmers are well represented as these markets develop because they're the ones that are going to be actually you know, deploying these solutions. They're the ones that actually have to go and plant the trees. So it's really, really important that we make sure it all works. Um, but yeah, it's it's very much a, a work in progress at the CLA. It's something that I'm focusing a huge amount of my time on and really, really loving doing so. So yeah, keep keep in touch and keep sort of looking at our website and things for updates because we'll be hopefully 
providing lots of them in the near future. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot more information and guidance to come because this is a rapidly evolving space and a very exciting space indeed. And I've got the feeling that we're going to hear a lot more about carbon offsetting over the next years and decades to come. This is going to be front and centre of policy, but public expectation, and it's going to bring, no doubt, some some quite exciting commercial opportunities for landowners uh, going forward. Well, I cannot thank our guests enough. I've really, really enjoyed the past 45 minutes, which has flown by, and there's so much information that's been shared. And as you, as you mentioned, Alice, we, we're just scratching the surface of this topic. There's so much depth to it, so much that, that there's yet to be agreed upon in terms of detail and, and logistics, but it's a very, very uh, exciting space to be in. And um, there's huge opportunities for landowners and farmers to, to get involved. Well, thank you ever so much to, to Harry, um, the, the co-founder and chief executive of Treeconomy. Thank you very much, Harry. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks once again uh, to, to Alice, the, the climate change lead with the CLA. Thank you ever, ever so much. Thanks, Alan. Really enjoyed it. Um, brilliant. And that uh, concludes today's podcast. If you're not a member of the CLA, you can join today. More information can be found on our website, www.cla.org.uk. Thank you for listening, and I hope you can join us again soon. You've been listening to the Rural Business Uncovered podcast, the CLA's weekly podcast released every Friday. You can find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts or just search Rural Business Uncovered on your chosen podcast provider. Remember to hit subscribe or follow to make sure you don't miss an episode. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 